0: I just want everybody to know that we have thanks for giving a damn t-shirts back in stock at otisgibbs.com. You guys bought a bunch of them and we ran out for a little bit, but now we have a ton of them and we'll mail them to you from our living room to yours. All of the proceeds go to a nonprofit organization. That's very near and dear to my heart. It's called the save the Otis foundation. It's mission is to keep at risk folk singers in a loving home surrounded by the people who care about him most, and with your help, we can make this possible. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Gerf Morlix. Gerf is a singer, a songwriter, a guitar player, and one of my favorite producers. You can find out everything you need to know about Gerf at gerfmorlix.com. This is actually the second time Gerf has been on the show the first time he was on, he told a lot of great stories about Towns Van Zant and Blaze Foley. I urge you to look that up. It was episode 26. You can find that on the SoundCloud Player at OtisGibbs.com. I've wanted to do this episode for about a year and a half when I found out that Gurf was a huge fan of Marty Robbins' album, Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs. And I'm a huge fan of that album also, so I immediately wanted to do a show where we talked about it. You know, just to give you an idea, it was a 1959 album where they recorded all 12 songs live in one day. And it went on to be a classic album, just a testament to all of the talented people involved. But Gerf came over to my house in East Nashville, and we had a great time putting this together, just talking about this album. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's Gerf Morlitz.
1: I don't remember exactly the first time that that I heard the song El Paso but I just fell in love with it and it was you know it was playing all the time I was hearing it five times a day on the radio and and I was 8 years old and I just flipped out over it and I had uh, I had money my my allowance was saved up and I knew I had been to the to the drugstore in the plaza in the little town that I grew up in and they had it in there and and it was two dollars and thirty six cents, and it had the world's greatest album cover—that pink background and the <laughs> Marty in black drawing his gun. And I wanted it, and I had the money, and I—I I asked my mom to drive me up to the drugstore. I wanted to buy that record, two dollars and thirty six cents, and because it had the song El Paso. And, and she said, "Well, don't spend all that money on on the whole thing. You can just buy the single. It's only forty five cents." But no man, I want all the songs. I knew I did, you know. I just I knew I wanted them all. And it's it's as good an album as I've ever heard. I still listen to it on a regular basis. Stands up today. Just an absolute classic, with probably the world's greatest album
0: cover. Yeah. I wonder what Marty was thinking when they told him they wanted to dress him up like a cowboy. It's the sort of thing that if we saw one of our friends doing that, we wouldn't think too yeah. well about it. But when you see him or Bo Diddley doing that.
1: Somehow it came across as organic when when Marty did that on that cover, you know, that didn't bother me. If it had been Johnny Horton, it would have bothered me, you know. (laughs) You know, when I would listen to those harmonies on that record, to me it sounded like, like four guys, like four Marty Robinses singing. those those voices matched so close i didn't know who it was i didn't even understand at the time that that had to be done live. that was cut live in the studio and probably in one day I think it was yeah that's pretty amazing and uh, i didn't know at the time that it was the glazer brothers i didn't know till many years later that 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 they sang so well and they sounded just like Marty they matched him and their their uh, the chemistry was amazing and you know, it wasn't on the back of records who played and, and sang on them until many years later, you know, till, till 10 years later probably. And uh, I wanted to know who the guitar player was because that guy never played the same lick twice. Everything was flawless and perfect and, and just oozing life, every note. And it was Grady Martin, but I didn't know that till many years later. Unbelievable.
0: He was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame just a few days ago. Really? Yeah.
1: God, that should have happened a long time ago.
0: Just so people know, I mean Grady Martin, it's impossible to say too many flattering things about him. When you talk about great, great guitar players, you're talking about Grady Martin. Yeah. And he's as good as there has ever, ever been. Yep. And he was a session player. He played on things like Coal Miner's Daughter, you know, Help Me Make It Through the Night, Saginaw, Michigan, Lefty Frizzell, Figures. Battle of New Orleans, Honky Talk yeah. Man, Johnny Horton. And uh, you know, on the road again, Willie Nelson with Ray Price and Jeannie Pruitt, just so many people. It's also worth saying that Grady Martin's playing on El Paso when Bob Dylan was recording Desolation Row. He asked Charlie McCoy to to copy that. Yeah. And uh, also Frank Sinatra when uh, he was uh, recording so- something stupid like I Love You. Yeah. That song he asked Glenn Campbell to copy that. I didn't know that. It was extremely it influential sense. guitar playing.
1: I think maybe that album should have been credited to marty robbins grady martin and the glazer brothers that's how important <laughs> it is in that song to me on that, on that whole album well, tom paul glazer was a singer from nashville and and i really never knew much about him uh, you know i had loved that album for years uh, i would hear his name associated with Waylon. as that's, that's one of the outlaws uh, you may know more about him than i do and uh it's only been in the last five or six years that I started um, looking on YouTube and finding out who the Glazer brothers were and how great they were. And I think it was um, Jim Glazer. I think was the one. He had this voice. He sounds just like Marty Robbins, but with a whole lot more edge—Marty like with some rough stuff. And I was—he <laughs> he was my favorite of the of the three. Really incredible voice. There's there's amazing stuff on YouTube of those guys. And there's, there's, there's songs on there where they're singing some, some three-part harmony and it just sounds like gunfighter ballads and trail songs. And then they'll be singing, like one guy will be singing a line and then all of a sudden he'll, he'll jump off and the other guy will take it in the middle of a word. It's, <laughs> have you seen that stuff? It's amazing.
0: They went on to start Glazer Sound Studios. It was a very, very artist-friendly recording studio where producers weren't telling you what to do. You could just simply nice. branch out and do what you wanted. And it was on Music Road they called it Hillbilly Central. But cool. it's where, you know, Kinky Friedman, Whalen, Chris Kristofferson, Billy Joe Shaver, Bobby Bear, you know, folks like that ended up uh, you know, cutting their teeth. Yeah. And recorded a lot of great recordings there. But uh and Tom Paul Glazer also co wrote Streets of Baltimore with Harlan Howard. Oh yeah, that's right. And um he ended up forming a publishing company and he was all worried about artist rights he definitely had his head on the right side of things ended up signing people like john hartford Whoa. and uh, there's these legendary stories that you hear about of these late night pinball tournaments that they had over at hillbilly central where people would be betting money on pinball and stand up all night doing things they probably shouldn't who played bass on that album it was bob moore yeah I remember that name now. He's an A-list bass player. He ended up playing with Dylan when Dylan came to town. Cool. And he played with everybody. He played on Crazy, Patsy Cline. You know, He stopped loving her today. That's him playing bass on that. And uh, oh. Brooke Benton's Rainy Night in Georgia. And he cool. played with everybody from Dylan to Elvis to Sinatra. He actually did a lot of orchestra gigs for yeah. about 20 years. Life Magazine or Time Magazine referred to him as the greatest country bass player of all time. It was a gorgeous sound on that album. Yeah. That upright sounds perfect. It's great. Jack Pruitt played, I think, the rhythm guitar on these recordings, and he played with Marty for from 1956 until he passed away uh, many, many years later. So he, I'm sure yeah. they were really close friends and uh, was an important part of the whole keeping everything together. You mentioned it earlier, but it actually was recorded in one day. Yeah. Was April 7th, 1959, they recorded the entire album.
1: That blows my mind. <laughs> I can't ever even do one guitar track without having to go back and spend an hour punching in on it. I'd, I'd have been doomed in those days. I'd have been a stevedore or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when you think of those harmonies, the Glazer brothers, it's just impossible to think that that wasn't, something that they had to overdub many times to get just yeah, right. They're perfect. It's all on the floor. It's unbelievable.
1: You know, this is interesting. I used to sing that song. I mean, I know those words by heart, you know. And uh when I was out in Los Angeles and I was playing in some honky-tonks, you know, for, for like tip money, you know, and people would come up and ask for songs and if I didn't know them, I'd learn them, you know. And I knew El Paso, so I would sing it sometimes. And then I kind of got into doing it regularly, and then something happened in my brain, and at one point, for a while, every time I would sing it, I would get like three-quarters of the way through the song, and the line that I had just sung would trigger another line that actually happened like two-thirds of the way through the song, so like 30 seconds later, I would be at that point again, and then the same thing would happen. And I couldn't get out of the song. It was it was kinda like the man who never returned. (laughs) I just had to stop doing it for a while and then it then that all went away. But it was this weird little loop that I got into.
0: I can't imagine trying to sing that. You know, in a well written
1: song and a song that's that well written, every line leads into the next line. It just makes so much sense. It's it's you know, if you've heard that song a thousand times, it's easy to sing.
0: There's local East Nashville legend that he wrote that song here in East Nashville. There's a neighborhood called Little Hollywood and Grady Martin had a house over there that he lived in and Marty also I think he bought the house off of Grady later on. And there's a lot of famous people that lived around there and that we're talking 15 or 20 houses. Yeah. But um Jimmy Buffett lived over there for a time and uh it's just an, it's a beautiful little neighborhood, just yeah. a little quiet part. But the story was that this house is where he wrote El Paso. And when you hear interviews of, of Marty, he claimed he was driving through Texas and past El Paso on yeah. his way to home in Phoenix. And um, he just started you know singing down in the West, West Texas town yeah. of El Paso. And he put it together there while he was in the car on that trip.
1: And yeah, I'm guessing
0: maybe he finished it when he was here in Nashville.
1: That's Yeah, that's not a song you write in an hour, I don't think. You know, that's... I'm, I'm sure there's something to that. He he got the inspiration that way, and maybe came up with a melody or something, and a, and a handful of lyrics. But that that song, it's brilliant. And he spent some time putting that together and editing it. He was a master at that. Very very Dylan
0: like. When Marty was in elementary school in Glendale, Arizona, there was a, one of his classmates was named Fidelina Martinez. Wow. And although Fidelina isn't a real person, he ended up uh, getting. Felina from the Fidelina Martinez name, where he kind of just changed it around, probably so it sang better. Had to do with the syllables. Yeah, yeah. and that, so that's kind of where that came from. I thought that was interesting to stumble across. That's great. How many
1: bars do you think there are in El Paso named Felina's? Or in West Texas? I mean, there's got to be. I, I haven't driven around El Paso much. Usually if I'm it's I'm, I'm only through there about every 20 years or so, but there's got to be those places. I mean, There's got to be ones that claim to be the
0: one, you know? There actually is. There's actually a place called Roses Cantina, and they make a big deal out of we are the actual place that Marty Robbins wrote this about. There's a lot of argument.
1: I would figure there would be like 40 (laughs) Roses Cantinas around there.
0: (laughs) Every town. You know, I've
1: I've been to all three of Robert Johnson's graves, you know? (laughs) (laughs)
0: I've been to two of them. There's so many ways to write a great song. When I think of Dylan... With it's all right, mom, I'm only bleeding. That's a lot of stream of consciousness stuff, even though I love it completely. Yeah. But it's a whole other thing to make a a story where every single word is important and pushes it forward. And I think I think Marty did that on on many of the songs on that album. Well,
1: yeah, you know, we've been talking about El Paso, but but look at Big Iron, which is a masterpiece. And you know, you could teach a course on what he put in and what he left out in that song. It's brilliant I've studied it, and that's another one I can sing and and uh, and I do sometimes and every line leads into the next line but i'm I'm amazed by the stuff that he left out on purpose because he didn't need to have a verse that explained that you know it's self-explanatory in, in in a bunch of different places
0: in that song it's amazing. When I listen to this, I can see where you would enjoy this record because uh, one of the things I love about your recordings that you've produced is there's just nothing unnecessary where it really seems to me as a listener, like the song and the singer is the most important thing and there's not a lot of unnecessary things involved. And this recording, you know, this album is kind of the epitome of that to me.
1: Yeah, it is to me too. And, And, you know, as I said, it's the first album I ever bought and I played it hundreds of thousands of times probably and uh and uh it's so perfect and it's so organic that i think that that was just imprinted on my mind at the time and everything that i've tried to do since then i'm sure i'm holding up to that standard i'm trying to hold up to that uh arrangement standard and and the the simplicity you can hear everything and and it's it's all great songs done by a great singer with a great vocal performance and then everything else supports it. And that's, that's, that's what I go for it. It's, it's, uh, it's sheer elegance in that album. And that's, you know, that's what I aspire to. I'm not saying I get that every time, but that's what I aspire to.
0: Well, Don Law definitely did that in the production of this album. And it's, he, it's flawless. He recorded it there at the Kwanzaa hut. Like I said, we've got four tracks to deal with and, uh, you know, he knew everything about that studio and where to play stuff. But he's an interesting guy. He's the same guy that recorded all of the Robert Johnson stuff. Oh wow, uh, yeah, he, that's right. He recorded Robert Johnson in the hotel room down in San Antonio. Didn't know that. Yeah, and then the Dallas recordings. Yep. He ended up recording uh, "San Antonio Rose." Bob Wills. He's the guy that made that recording. Oh man. So if that was all he did, yeah. that would be plenty. That's unbelievable. That's more than yeah. most people ever hoped for, but he ended right. up recording uh, Johnny Horton's Battle in New Orleans. Yeah, He was a producer on that. He also produced Big Bad John for Jimmy Dean. Another one that I loved when I was a kid. Yeah.
1: Don Law was associated with, you know, there were those albums with Mike Bloomfield and and Nick Gravinitis. Uh Great blues albums from the late 60s. Uh, my Labors by uh, Nick Gravenites, and it's uh, it's not killing me by Mike Bloomfield. Big big albums for me in 1968 or nine, and uh, I think Don Law produced those. And they had great covers. They,
0: they had were, better album covers back then.
1: There's no reason for that. <laughs> there's no reason for that. You know, I walk into a I walk into Waterloo Records in Austin. And there's a rack of records there. As soon as you walk in the door, and I look at them, and I can see a hundred albums, and I go, that one, that one, and that one are the only three good ones. And you know, I can do that in five seconds.
0: When you were a kid, how many records did you buy just because of the album cover?
1: I I did that a lot, yeah. And I would study those album covers. I'd go to the I'd go to the record store and stay there for hours, turning it over and seeing who played this. You know, in the, in the late '60s, that info was on the was on the album cover, a lot of the time. Usually on the back, which otherwise you'd have to buy it to open it up. It was yeah. on the sleeve. You know, the artwork is really important. You know, you know. We talked about Marty's cover, and and how great that was. It matched how great the album was, and I think your cover has to match how great your album is, and has to be. Uh, integrated, you you can't you can't have a a simple sounding album and a busy cover. You know, well you 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 could you know if there was a reason for that. But uh, I like it when everything fits together perfectly and it it just becomes organic.
0: I mentioned it earlier, but I wonder if the same art director that did the Marty Robbins album was the same one that did Bo Diddley was a Gunslinger. I wonder. Or if there was influence, wonder. one influenced the other, ought to be a way to find that out.
1: Well, Cool Water was written by Bob Nolan and recorded by the Sons of the Pioneers. And I had that album. There was a, there's a bunch of 45s that, uh, my dead grandfather had and, and went over to the house that he had lived in. And I was like three or four or something. And, uh, And they said, we can take some stuff. And I saw these 45s, they were chartreuse. Well, not exactly chartreuse. They were kind of this green, kind of a bluey chartreuse, the vinyl. And uh, I think they were on Capitol, if I'm not mistaken. I can kind of remember the label. The the copies that I have, the label has faded. You can hardly read it anymore. Um, But I had a whole bunch of um, Sons of the Pioneers and Jimmy Wakely and this great... Kind of western music and i remember here in cool water the first time and i just loved that and that's elegant as can be you know that's that's another example is everything is perfect on there and those guys sing so well and and you know the the glazer brothers and marty were doing the sons of the pioneers that's obvious to me and uh, and bob nolan i guess was the was the guy he wrote the song and and it's it's an amazing song and every version is different for some reason they put things in different parts, and uh, every time I hear it, it's it, you can't just sing along with a new version because it's going to be different. But what a great song!
0: There isn't a two-week period that goes by that I don't listen to the Sons of the Pioneers, yeah, or Roy Rod- Rogers, yeah, you know, or, or Greg Orland or Utah Phillips singing yep. his song, you know, Western songs. I love that stuff. The accordion was so
1: flawless on those things, and the singing. Well, Strawberry Roan is on that album, and it's, a, it's an old song. I mean, that's got to be from the 1800s, and, and I don't know. Uh, it's a great song. I've heard a few different versions, and uh, I, I love Marty's version. The, the other versions are different. They have different verses, and, and I find that interesting. It's folk music, you know, yeah. sung by folks. Um, yeah. I just, I'm taken with those story songs, you know. You, you know. We talked about They're Hanging Me Tonight. I love that song. You know, I I said that I wanted all the songs. My mom tried to talk me into just buying the single. I said, no, I want all the songs. And uh, I I recorded an album called Cut and Shoot back in like 2007. And I I recorded uh, uh, They're Hanging Me Tonight on that album. I I knew there was a reason I wanted all those songs. And I think that was the reason. (laughs) Yeah, I listened to that album... You know, maybe almost once a month or something. You know, I ha- I bought it on CD. I still have the I still have the album. Uh, I don't play it on the vinyl. I listen to it on CD. It's in my iPad. I mean, it's in my iPod, and uh, I listen to it regularly. And you know, like if I got my iPod on shuffle and it comes up, I just I go to the album. I just listen to the whole album. It's a masterpiece.
0: Yeah, I encourage everybody to look it up. I think the whole album is on YouTube. If you don't want to. Yeah. You don't want to find it elsewhere, but it's worth finding elsewhere.
1: Yeah. The the last couple of verses of Big Iron are are just amazing. There was 40 feet between them when they stopped to make their play. And the swiftness of the Ranger is still talked about today. Texas Red had not cleared leather when a bullet fairly ripped. And the Ranger's aim was deadly with the Big Iron on his hip. And the song could be over there. You know, but then there's another verse. It was over in a moment, and the folks had gathered round. There before them lay the body of the outlaw on the ground. Well, he might have went on living, but he made one fatal slip when he tried to match the ranger with the big iron on his hip. It's incredible. A bullet fairly ripped. I love that.
0: Cleared leather.
1: Wow. Yeah. Texas Red had not cleared leather when a bullet fairly ripped. How do you think of that? That's 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 worthy of a Bob Dylan line or a Leonard Cohen line. You know, that's
0: that's as good as you can write. I appreciate you taking the time to come over to the house today. Geez, to talk about this album? <laughs> I'd, go, I'd go way out of
1: my way to do that. This was great. I appreciate it, man. Well, I do too. Thanks, Otis.
0: I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Gurf for coming over to my living room here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Gurf at gurfmorlix.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out, but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.